Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The medical device industry is built on continuous improvement, and that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick, practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, I got to speak with Mark Duval, and I spoke on the topic of ad promo and the difference in regulatory affairs and legal perspectives. Before I get into some of the things that we talked about, I want to give you a little bit of context about this episode because it's a little bit different. This episode was recorded virtually, but it was recorded in front of a live audience. So if you see some of us during the discussion talking about the comment section or some of the things people are asking or the questions, that's what that's about. Just full disclosure, as you're driving your car or listening to this episode, that's what happened there. Also, at the end of the episode, we opened it up for 30 minutes of question and answers from the audience. Now, that is not included in this episode or in this recording that is being published. So you won't have access to that. If you're interested in in listening to that Q&A, let me know. We were planning to put that in the community just as a separate section, just so that you wouldn't have to be bothered, bogged down with those questions and answers. It's very good stuff, but uh, let me know if you're interested in hearing more about that. Okay, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about just a couple different things that came to my mind are things like, what are the four buckets of knowledge from information sharing? This is a fantastic framework that Mark throws out there. He doesn't just throw it out there. He goes into very much detail about each one of these different buckets and his fantastic knowledge that he shares. Also, what's the difference in perspectives to consider when utilizing a regulatory consultant versus a legal advisor. They have two different perspectives. They're looking at it from two different directions. Both are very important. And we talk a little bit about that. Also, how should we think about the information that we provide with our medical device during the sales and marketing of medical devices? It's very important. Sometimes things that medical device manufacturers don't think enough about. We covered so much ground. Mark Duvall is fantastic. He's the founder and president of Duvall & Associates. He has over 20 years of experience in healthcare marketing and in advertising. He's a leading expert in medical device promotion, an attorney, and with so much experience. I first heard him speak at RAPS, where he is a fellow. He's a fellow at RAPS. I heard him speak in Phoenix, Arizona. I was very much impressed with his insights, his strategies, his ability to break down complex topics in a way that is easy to understand, to create a successful ad campaign that complies with regulatory guidelines and effectively communicates the value of medical devices to target audiences. So this episode is chock full of his expertise, his practical tips for creating what he calls an appropriately aggressive and effective yet compliant ad campaign. So don't miss this chance to hear from one of our industry's top thought leaders, I hope you enjoy this episode with Mark Duvall on ad promo and the legal perspective in medical device development. Hey, Mark. Yes. All right. right. This is great. We should be live at this point. 
I'm just going to see if there's anybody out there. If you want to put something in the chat, just to let us know you can hear us. We'll get going in just a few minutes here. All right. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? Great. Okay, good. We have some people and we also found the chat. Curious where everybody's coming in from, if, if you care to share. I personally, I'm from in, I'm in Nashville right now. I know Mark, are you, you're in Minneapolis right now, aren't you? In Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis, uh, 18th floor of the medical arts building uh, right off Nicollet Mall. All right. Looks like we got some people from San Diego. Chris is from, okay. Linda's from Minneapolis. I saw someone from Nashville. I'll have to, let's get together sometime guys. But let's go ahead and get started. So just to let everybody know, we've got about 90 minutes scheduled. If that, is that still okay with you, Mark? Yep. Okay. So we're. We'll just plan about an hour for the conversation. If you have questions, those of you in the audience, feel free to put those in the Q&A. But the way we're doing this, we're just going to kind of treat this like a podcast. That That is the intent. Um, the general conversation will be recorded and released on our RSS feed as a podcast. And then the last part, the Q&A, that might be... We, we haven't decided exactly how we're going to release that, but feel free to ask your questions throughout, and we'll definitely try to get those towards the end as well. And... Uh, yeah, excited about the topic. All right. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Um, so my name is Etienne Nichols. Uh, I'm going to be the host of today's show. Today with us is Mark Duval, the founder, president, and CEO of Duval & Associates. He has over 20 years of experience in healthcare marketing and advertising. He's a leading expert in medical device promotion. I first met Mark at the RAPS conference back in September. Side note, he is a fellow at RAPS, uh, the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society. So his pre his presentation on ad promo there was outstanding. I was really excited to hear that. And so personally, I've been waiting months for the opportunity to have another conversation with Mark. So Mark, I'm so glad to have you on the show, show today. I'm glad to be here. And it was, it was fun meeting you in Phoenix. And, and uh, it'll be fun doing this follow-on podcast. So the the topic that we have today is is ad promo. Just that's the short version, I guess. But before we get into the nitty gritty gritty of that, um, we usually talk about quality or regulatory topics. But this is this is a marketing topic, but it is quality and regulatory. So maybe we could start out by talking about what ad promo is to medtech, and maybe why medtech professionals should even be concerned with this. Yeah. Well, foundationally, you know. Once you get a device clean, you know, the whole regulatory strategy that you have in order to get a device cleared or the grant of a de novo or approved as a PMA is to have a baseline uh, representation claims that you can make uh, about the device. And that you have to think that through very carefully because the more sophisticated your claims get, the higher up the regulatory pathway you have to go. And our job is, you know, when we get involved with the company very early on and help put together a submission or do the submission for them is, Trying to get, you know, start with the end in mind. What is it you'd like to say this product does? And then we benchmark that against the competition, whether it be a predicate for a 510K or just another product out there that the Novo is close to or a PMA is close to. And have you identify what is it you want that product to see that makes you differentiable in the marketplace? And then we work with you to do sort of a regulatory assessment to say, well, look, if you now, if you want to, there's a scale. If you want to make it a very a fairly pedestrian claim, inherit the underlying, uh, basically the underlying um, IFU from a, a, another product on the market today, the, the intended use statement, then we'll take you down the 510K path. And the more extravagant that claim gets or the more detailed that claim gets, the more it migrates from a tool to being a treatment, for example, 
the more likely you you're going to you're going to challenge yourself to the edge of the 510k program may end up on as being a de novo still a class two moderate risk device but for which there's no predicate and now you've inherited instead of substantial equivalence as the standard for getting your product through you're going to inherit the pma standard of reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness but with a de novo it's kind of like a pma light in terms of the expectations for the quantum and the quality of the data you need to submit. So we're always, that's, it's very, it's really critical for the, um, the company first to know what it wants to say about its product. And then when it gets that clearance or that granted de novo or that approval, you, then it comes in the, you know, the, the magic of what the marketers would like to say beyond that, to extrapolate from that, that baseline intended use statement to what else can we say and by the way, if we develop additional data going forward, uh, what can we add to the promotional platform without upsetting FDA or violating the principle that we're outside the scope of our intended use statement that was granted by FDA? So, And from a quality perspective, we always tell people, frankly, that we don't like the promotional review process to be in the quality system. Although it is a quality to, to follow the claims matrices to make sure you're staying have fidelity to the claims that you're allowed to make. You, it is a quality like system, but I never like ceding to FDA the, uh, the authority into the quality management system, the right or the ability to look at promotional materials. Now they'll assert that. Yeah, they'll assert that all the time, and companies do it all the time. So don't get me wrong, but we sometimes talk companies into having a separate promotional advertising promotional review process. That's like their a quality system check, if you will, but it's not within the core quality system itself, because I never like to give the jurisdiction authority over advertising promotion to the FDA um, that easily. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and before we go too far down, I, I you and I were talking a little bit before we had this conversation about the difference and maybe what a regulatory affairs professional, their scope and and really perspective might be the word versus a regulatory affairs attorney and uh, and a, the legal side what what are the differences in those perspectives because i think you've already kind of touched on it as far as you know whether you where you house some of these documents but what how would you describe the differences in those perspectives that's a great question and i and i i don't say this by way of offending anybody because there's no right or wrong the regulatory affairs professionals are you know a lot of times they're biomedical engineers and scientists and they are much more steeped in the medicine and the science than we would be as lawyers, although I've learned a lot through a 36-year career just through osmosis from some very smart biomedical engineers and scientists and physicians. But we tend to look at the, um, we're not so we're not very deferential to the agency. Um, we know that the agency often exceeds its authority, its jurisdiction authority. So when we even look at advertising promotion, they're often offending the First Amendment. They've lost a lot of cases. Uh, that have kind of forced FDA to reshape or rethink how they regulate advertising promotion. But the general difference between, I think, a regulatory affairs professional and a lawyer is, and I, we, I'll talk about this in the context of maybe the 510K program. When a regulatory affairs professional puts together a 510K, they, you know, it's an evidentiary document. They're thinking very hard about all the evidence that they need to put in the framework that's given to them. Uh, in the E-Star program, an e-copy program, and they want to put it together kind of as FDA directs them to. Um, and we th- don't think of it just as an evidentiary document because there's a story to be told. We think of it as an advocacy document owing to our lineage as lawyers. 
It's an advocacy document with evidence. So that's how we look at it. And we're just trying sometimes to help the regulatory affairs professional to say, don't just immediately assume that FDA's request for information or their perspective, for example, on the definitional elements of the 510K program, i.e. that you have the same intended use, that you have the same technological characteristics, or if you have different technological characteristics, that you truly are raising different questions of safety and effectiveness. You can push back and fight that. And that's what our job is. And we do that all the time. One other thing the FDA will always do is so they'll start talking about, well, you need to establish in a 510K the clinical benefit or utility for that device. And the immediate visceral reaction I have as a lawyer is time out. No, we don't. We don't have to, we in, as a 510K, when we choose a predicate, we inherit the underlying regulatory presumption that the product is as safe enough, the predicate family has established the essential utility of the product predicate family. And it's safe, generally safe and effective. I just have to show I'm as safe and effective as that predicate that I've, I've chosen. So can, so can you give an example? Yeah, give me an example of of them change, you know, maybe going further or, or asking for something when uh, based on the predicate. What, what are your what are your examples? Well, for here's another idea. So there's a there's a, a section of statute that came out under during the least burdensome years when the least burdensome statute was being enacted, and it was and then there were amendments. The FDA came out. There was a statute that industry asked for, and it's called it's five thirteen i one e of the statute, and I just I roll that off because I deal with it so often on appeals. But under 513 I1E, the FDA is not allowed to assume a use for the product. So let's say you take a fairly modest pedestrian intended use statement and you just want to breeze through uh, the 510K program and get on the, the market. And maybe in the future you have some idea for some other uses to which the device would be put and for which you will go back to the FDA in sort of a staged approach, right, to get additional claims. Well, sometimes in that initial submission, FDA will assume that you are going to claim uses that you're not yet claiming or you hadn't submitted. And when you, they assume that inflated use, which might be a treatment claim, for example, versus a tool claim, they'll then conjure up uh, data requirements that meet that assumed use and are much higher than what you would, you would do normally for a, a, the, the 510K claim you're, you're seeking. So when they do that, they're violating the statute. They cannot assume an unstated use. Now, if they really believe that the product might be used there, they literally, under the statute, have to go to Dr. Shuren, the center director, for a finding that there's a reasonable likelihood that harm could result from this assumed use. And they can then add, make you add limitations of use to the labeling, but they can't preclude your clearance for that more pedestrian claim you're seeking. Um, so that's just a, one example of many that we uh, we confront or face when we're working. When a company comes into us, they won't even see or identify these issues, and we'll go, "Yeah, here's an issue, and you know we we need to attack it." And then we work a lot on least burdensome stuff as well when the FDA asks for more data than that to which they're entitled. Yeah, that makes sense. So if we take this back to add promo then um, for medical devices, I've heard you talk about four buckets of information. I wonder if you could expound on those four four buckets of information flow. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to, I'm going to cheat by looking at some of my own slides as I do that. Um, All right. The, the first, so the, for, I've taught this for years and um, actually we wrote a, we wrote a chapter for a book. A lawyer is a good friend of mine um, from Eckstein Becker uh, out in Philadelphia. 
And we were asked for Food Dog Drug Law Institute to come with a, up with an analytical framework that would help marketers and regulatory affairs professionals understand how we communicate information broadly about a, a device uh, or a drug, in that case, to the marketplace. And I, I thought of it as I, I created this four buckets of information flow. And when I teach courses on this, w- whether it be at Convergence for wraps or it be for a client, um, we talk about the promotion of on-label information. Because, of course, fundamentally, we're, we can only lawfully promote on-label, although hold that thought. I'll come back to that in a minute. Secondly, we talk about the dissemination of off-label information, and that's that was created back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the FDA lost a major lawsuit, a major case in the Washington Legal Foundation, which allowed us to engage in the exchange of medical and scientific information. So um, and it, that's uh, because it's First Amendment protected. The FDA was never, a government agency is never allowed to act as a filter of what information is being exchanged in society, whether it be from a manufacturer to a, uh, a consumer, a, you know, a patient or a manufacturer to uh, a physician or from a physician to a patient. They just aren't supposed to be involved. But what they can regulate is to ensure that what is being discussed is truthful and not misleading. So when you disseminate information about off-label uses of your product, you can do that. And FDA has two guidance documents that allow you to do that. One is on a reactive basis where somebody unsolicited ask a doctor asks the company a question and the First Amendment door is open. And you can respond to that with information that's tailored to the question or the question. There's a second guidance document that addresses proactive dissemination. And that allows you to proactively send information out the door, usually from your medical affairs group, smaller companies that might be regulatory affairs or clinical or whatever. But you can send out affirmatively or proactively off-label information about your product. So that's bucket number two, dissemination. Bucket number three is communication. That is a huge bucket. Um, And I I can't take the time, but it's informally safe-harbored ways you might be able to discuss off-label uses with folks out in the medical community. And and we cover under that bucket, which is huge, we cover press releases and social media and grants for physician-initiated trials and off-label uses or grants for CME discussing off-label uses. Or maybe when you retain consultants under the, the auspices of a consulting arrangement, can you impart information about potential off-label uses in order to extract information about, you know, what the clinical study might look like, what the, me- you know, messaging, marketing messaging might have to look like, et cetera. So that's a, that's a very big bucket. And we usually whiteboard with companies all the time on that one. It takes a lot of time. And time out. So when you yep. say safe harbor, what, I'm not super familiar with that term. What does that mean? Well, that's a really good question. That is actually my construction. It's a figment of my regulatory imagination. Uh, in this case, there are safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute. I'm not going to get into that. But these safe harbors, these in what I call informally safe harbored activities, are things that the FDA recognizes. Let me give you an example. When you do a press release about an off-label use, maybe you're, you've got an, a cleared or approved product and it's on the market. And now you're studying that product for a, another use. And, and you want to do a press release talking about the enrollment of the first patient or talking about the enrollment of the last patient or talking about the, resu- the results that have come out. The FDA tolerates in a press release 
the discussion of an off-label use because it's an informally safe harbored activity. They know under Rule FD, for example, of the Securities and Exchange Commission, publicly traded companies have a requirement to talk about information that might be material to an investing public. So they allow you to talk about futuristic uses of an already approved product that would otherwise be considered off-label promotion. And even when it's a privately invested company, it's not a publicly traded the FDA seems to extend that rationale that you need to talk to your investors and to the public generally about what your what your company is doing and what it's up to. So that's an example of an informally safe harbor. The other one would be when you do a consultancy. If you signed up somebody under a, a confidentiality agreement, a consulting arrangement, and they're sharing information with you and you're sharing information that, hey, we're, we're going to pursue this off-label use or this new use, which is today off-label. But we want to get some information from you about what you think about how we might market that. If our clinical trials come out appropriately, we get on the, we get approved, we get on the market. And so you're engaging in off-label discussion before that product is actually approved for that use. But that's an informally safe harbor uh, activity at that point. Okay, that makes sense. So we have promotion of on-label information, dissemination of off-label medical scientific information, communication of on and off-label information. I might ask for some examples of those, but what was the fourth bucket? Yeah, the fourth bucket is kind of, it's, it's relatively new. It really, it's not super new. It came from 2000. It's been, well, it's been, been developing for a while, but it really solidified in 2016 with the Howard Root Vascular Solutions case, which is a very famous a medical device case. But there's been a series of cases that the FDA has had to fight in court where both pharmaceutical and medical device companies have basically said, you're, um, you're over-regulating free speech. And, you know, so when you think about if you're disseminating off-label information, what makes that lawful? It's because if you're truthful and not misleading, if you have disclaimer, disclaimers and disclosures, about the information you're about to share through the dissemination, that's what remedies the fact that if you put that, if you actually promoted for that use, the FDA would consider it adulterated and misbranded, send you a warning letter and probably tell you to cease and desist, right? If you, if you extend that thinking of dissemination to um, off-label promotion, you're asking yourself, if I can disseminate that information, why couldn't I promote it uh, in the same fashion with appropriate disclosures and disclaimers, which make that otherwise off-label information actionable by the FDA on an enforcement basis. And um, it came about because, for example, in the hard root vascular solutions case was a this really important case where the CEO and the company were basically criminally charged and civilly charged with having violated the False Claims Act and then, and by way of using the mail and wire fraud, and, and that made it criminal. And Howard Root is a very brave CEO. And I know we're going to, you're going to have him on in the future, but he, um, they spent $25 million in five years of his, of their lives. And they, I know the chairman of the board of that company at the time, and the board was behind it because they felt that somebody had to sort of get FDA under control. They were prosecuting Howard for allowing the organization, which he did not do anyway, for allegedly promoting an off-label use for the product. And for that, as a CEO, he was strictly liable, irresponsible. And they fought that in court. 
Um, and and time, have, so, so for the CE, CEO to be strictly liable uh, and responsible, what does that mean? Like, what what's the potential implications there? Well, there's a there's a group, there's a couple of cases, the Dodderwake and the Park Doctrine cases that are what we refer to as lawyers, where the FDA years ago established the fact that under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, if you as a responsible executive allow uh, criminal behavior to go on underneath your nose, you are personally responsible for it. So if a sales rep, in the case of Howard Root, was arguably promoting for an off-label use of the de- of their device, um, then Howard Root, as CEO, is responsible for it. And see, he did never, he actually did the promotional program because Howard is a lawyer by training. So when he would train the reps, he would tell them, you can't sell for this particular use in the perforator vein for the, for the product. It was a very small little vessel. The product was used to ablate for varicose veins, basically. And um, the FDA had this idea in their heads, given the broad intended use statement that they were granted, that this little connecting perforator vein between the two major veins was off-label. And it didn't make any sense at all. And um, and it was funny because on cross-examination, FDA's branch chief, the Howard Roots defense lawyer, essentially got the, the branch chief to admit it was it could be unlabeled. <laughs> so the case was done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it but it, it took a you know five years to get there. Yeah. And can you imagine this? How much you'd sweat and worry, and how much Howard Howard's wife worried for his future, um, their future. But he was a very brave guy and just felt that he stood on principle and he won. So but the, is, yeah. that's the fourth bucket. That's our fourth bucket. You can there is an argument to be made that if you do it carefully and appropriately. You can do that. And, and I'll, let me add one more thing at the end before I tell you that. The reason I'm getting more confident in that position is that FDA in June 2018 put out a pretty good guidance document called Medical Products Communications that are consistent with FDA-required labeling. And there, in that guidance document, they essentially enunciated the First Amendment standard. And I was, like, excited because, like, FDA, you, you're finally, like, getting there. You finally got it. And I, um, it's a good, it's a good guidance deck. Now it doesn't, it's not broadly permitting you to promote off label, but here's the, let me let, share one last thing. Here's how the courts look at it. FDA says, we don't care if the speech is truthful. The promotional speech is truthful. If under our jurisdiction and authority, it's adulterated and misbranded, you didn't come to us for clearance or approval. Then you've engaged in criminal behavior. You're promoting illegally promoting off label, and the courts sort of switch that around. They say you got that wrong, FDA. Your statute sprung from something called the Constitution, which is pretty much bedrock for the country. The Constitution gives us the First Amendment, and if the speech was truthful and not misleading, then you cannot use truthful speech. You cannot prosecute truthful speech, and that's the tension. And once FDA finally figured out. The courts were immovable on that concept. They started moving and they got more um, permissive in this arena. I see. Interesting. And so I'm going to take a quick moment real quick because you've mentioned a lot of things. One was the the book that you helped co-write. So I'm bringing this up to say in the show notes, those of you listening, if you're interested in hearing more about this, we'll put links to the guidance documents of off-label dissemination for reactive and proactive, as well as the medical products communications guidance document. Yep. Um, and and uh, 
Cardiac Arrest, Howard Root's book. I have it on my desk right now. I'm working through it. It's a great book. Um, highly recommended. Yes, he is going to be on the podcast before too long, so I'm excited about that. Um, so, okay, so there, these are, from a medical device professional perspective, I typically think, okay, but I, I really have to be careful with what I say, but you're, what, what you're uh, saying it almost flies in the face of what I've always heard about um, any kind of communication about these different um, these different aspects. So you have a good relationship both with the agency and with the industry. I'm curious, um, what are the best recommendations for regulatory affairs professional when they're when they're approaching these subjects? Obviously, we don't want to just assume that we can promote off label. You know, we have to be careful. But but what what are, what's the advice and recommendation you have about that? That's funny. I just got off the phone late last night with an Australian company talking about this. It, the natural tendency or proclivity of a regulatory affairs professional, again, is to be fairly deferential to the agency. And and they should. We all should. Um, I have great relationships there. I really love working with the agency. I respect them greatly. But my job is to challenge. And I'll tell you what, by way of an example, years ago, when I was general counsel of 3M's pharmaceutical business, I was asked by the executive committee of the law section of pharma, the big trade association for the pharmaceutical industry, to debate a woman named Ann Witt, who was a, a JD, a, a lawyer, who was head of the Division for Drug Marketing, Advertising, Communications. It's now called the Office of Prescription Drug Products. But the reason I was asked to debate them is because FDA at that point was taking the stance that the industry could not do, listen to what I'm about to say, the industry could not do direct-to-consumer advertising. Now, I'm going to look you in the eye at the end. I'm going to ask you, how many TV ads for drugs have you seen in your lifetime? Could even say. <laughs> but that shows you how the agency has morphed over the years. They actually, they didn't want you to disseminate off-label information. They didn't want you uh, to engage in direct-to-consumer advertising. And I, frankly, it was the Federal Trade Commission, who I remember, assigning employ employees to the FDA to help them nurture them to come along to accept the idea you gotta allow people companies to the patients want it you gotta allow companies to advertise now there needs to be in a format that we have to agree upon and um, that's why you see all of those um you know the, the benefit the, both the benefits and the risks are juxtaposed in in the course of the ad some of it will scare some of the, the risks will scare you to death um, and then they've had to trend then they've had to transition that to social media where you might be character limited to 100, you used to be 144 characters, now it's 300, some whatever. And how do you get the fair balance of risks and benefits, the you know indications, the contraindications, the side effects, the precautions, the warnings, et cetera? FDA has morphed in, in an amazing fashion over that time, and they did a much better job with social media. Once, once the, the dam was broken, if you will, direct to consumer, and they accepted that they would or were going to have to do that in the issued guidance on how it could be done. Then they segued into social media a lot more readily and did a pretty good job of it, frankly. That makes sense. So you mentioned the the fair balance part. So, and, and I just want to kind of circle back to that because you mentioned a couple times, truthful, not misleading, fairly balanced, but the fairly balanced. I wonder if you could expound even a little bit more sure. on that or, or maybe any of those that might have any kind of subjectivity to the term. Absolutely. So always keep in the backdrop. I always it's kind of a mantra. I make everybody repeat when I'm when I do a training exercise. I make them repeat after me: truthful, not misleading, fairly balanced. Seems simple, 
And all of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act on advertising promotion hangs on that general's general principles. We all, I think, kind of know what truthful and not misleading is, and government regulates that, whether it's a consumer product or a drug or a device. But when you get to the point of fair balance, it just means the FDA, I'll give away an example when I train. When I used to train, uh, talk to, review promotional materials for marketers, they'll have, they might have, back in the days when we had a lot of sales collateral material and they had a six-page piece, right? And you open it all up. They'd have all the benefits on the first five pages. And then you knew it was on the backside, right? Or maybe on the inside cover of the back because they didn't want it to be on the back because that was easily seen. All, you know, the risks in small print at the bottom of the page. And the FTC say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We want fair balance. We want you to juxtapose this benefit with this risk, this benefit with this risk, and so on and so forth, all the way through the piece. And make it sure it's readable and it's legible. And, you know, make a fair attempt. Again, it's all about context. It's all, And that's part of being truthful, not misleading, is, is you want to leave a fair impression about what the product is and does and what it is not and does not do. So with with social media, though, there's a lot of time. I mean, you mentioned the character limits, but there are other ways to interact on social media with emojis or thumbs up and things like that. Is I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail necessarily unless you want to. But how does how does the agency look at that? What are what are the people who could be held liable in, in those cases when they're they're interacting on social media? Yeah, that's a great that's a great social media has been very good and it in a difficult thing for people like me at the same time, because how do you help people navigate, you know, Instagram and TikTok and, and Facebook and whatnot. And yeah, there's, there, and Twitter has had a, there's been a, there are a number of promotional warning letters where the thumbs up has gotten people, you know, companies in trouble because there'll be this discussion that ensues online uh, in social media. And then they'll, they'll, you know, the marketer from a company or a sales rep just cannot contain themselves. And they say, well, I'm on my private time. I'm on social media now and I'm going to defend my product. And if I like a, if I hear about an off-label claim being made about my product and how safe it is, I'm going to put my, my thumbs up, you know, and FDA has actually issued warning letters for companies kind of setting up that venue or participating in a venue they didn't set up, but being effusive about commenting on or putting thumbs up, agreeing with off-label uses and things. The company, if you're going to, you have every right to participate in social media, but again, you're, you're still regulated and your employees are still regulated is it because they're representing you, the company. So you have to be careful about how you participate in social media. And it, there's a lot of nuances to that. And I won't drill down on that right now, unless you ask me a question that forces me to do it. <laughs> okay. And maybe, maybe that question will come up. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, yeah. if, if we go back to that four bucket of information flow, because I really love that framework. Um, I still think, so the dissemination of off-label medical use or the communication of on and off-label information, can you give some examples of when that might come into play or just how could, could you expound on that? Yeah, let me, and I'm going to actually get myself down to that slide for my own benefit because it'll help me uh, yeah. help know what I'm talking about. But because I, I do put a, actually a lot of things in there, I don't, I might not even have it. Yeah, I have it right here. Um, so dissemination, you know, is a really helpful exercise. It's kind of obtuse, indirect marketing. Um, but you have every right to do it. So if if there's a peer-reviewed journal article that comes out on, on a use of your product on an off-label use, you can you can exchange that. And FDA has, like I said, these two guidance documents. 
uh, one of them allows for the proactive dissemination, which I really like. And so when the Washington Legal Foundation case first came out, Judge Lambert kind of set the stage for what he thought dissemination should look like. And I remember FDA, actually, because I, I used to teach a, a, for about five years, I taught with a, a woman named Deb Wolf from FDA and a you know, promotional advertising policy group for CDRH. And I remember one time Deb coming to me and say, hey, you know, the, 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 the FDAMA, which is a statute that allowed for off-label dissemination, was sunsetting. And we've got this WLF case. And I was told to ask you, what, what, do you, what would you think we should do? Um, and I just, my, you know, I'm an N of one in terms of input, right? But I, I, they asked me, so I, I said, I would, I, would, I would take the Washington Legal Foundation case and I would basically memorialize it into a guidance document. It's pretty good. Covers a lot of great ground, and I think it's a great starting place for us as an industry. And they did, and the FDA did that, and it's it is pretty good. It's it's a little even overbroad from a from a constitutional scholar standpoint, so, but it's it's livable, uh, it's doable. So what happens is, if you want basically, if you want to disseminate information, you have to you have to you can mail out like we used to do it at three and the very first time the WLF came out case came out, we took a basically a folder. And at the top of the folder, it had the name of the, the publication or the article and the authors and the publication where it was published. At the bottom, it said 3M Pharmaceuticals. You open it up in these two sleeves. And in one sleeve, you have a letter from the medical, the assistant medical director that said, hey, this is an off-label use of this product. And the on-label uses are in the package insert stapled to this letter. And you can get the package insert for that product. And then the right side, we had a bibliography of articles that were pro, con, or indifferent about the use of this device in, in that off-label use to be fairly balanced. And then we would, and, and there was a sticker on the actual reprint on the top that was yellow with black lettering that said, this is an off-label use of X. The, for, for the full prescribing information, please see whatever. And just so it's, it's prominent and it's permanently affixed, that article. That is off-label dissemination. And frankly, most of my clients that I counsel today do it just about like that. I, we're, we're a little simpler version of what FDA's guidance says. Remember, FDA's guidance is not binding, and I think it's a little overbroad. But we meet the essentials, and my clients have never been in trouble doing it the way we've done it, and they've been doing it. Uh, gosh, for 25 years. So I'm curious if th that makes sense, how you, how you laid that out, but I'm curious, what are some of the things that you see companies doing incorrectly? Like maybe they're thinking, okay, well, I'm just, I'm doing exactly like, uh, you know, Mark's described, but, and then you notice, well, you, you, you messed up here. Are there any things like right. that that you see? Yeah, most definitely. One thing that one pe big pet peeve for FDA is when you have a cover page, uh, first of all, you don't say it, you know, you just start handing stuff out with any, without any disclaimers or disclosures at all. And then they'll have a cover page that sort of does their distillation, sales distillation of what this article says. And some of it may be right on and some of it may be really off. And, um, and, and, and there's no fair balance. It's all about the benefits, nothing about the risks. And that bothers FDA when it's done like that. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways you can mess it, but FDA has got pretty, um, understanding that this is the world we're in and that the First Amendment does permit. And look, we should want medical professionals to have the most recent information about products because it does help them make decisions. Now, what they don't, what they also don't like is when you hand out these glowing articles, 
knowing full well there are articles that are in contradistinction mm. and you're not handing those out with them or at least making people aware of that counterbalancing information. And that, again, that's that's kind of violating the overarching principle of fair balance, right? We want to state both the benefits and the risks. Okay. So that's dissemination. How does that differ from communication of on and off label? Yeah, communication. Um, can I, can, is, is it hard to put up a slide here? It uh, shouldn't be. Um, there should be a button between your, uh, there's a, a video button and a, the gear button. There's a little square with a dot in the middle. Do you see that? With a, with an arrow? Yes. Yep. That should allow you to find something and share. Select a select a screen. Let's try. Can you? See, yeah. Yeah. There it is. Can you see that? Yep. So this is what I'm yeah. talking about when we. This is the presentation. I think I made this one for a convergence. It's probably the one you saw in yeah. Phoenix. So this communication bucket is. I talk about when it is informally. Again, it's not written any guidance document or anything else. But when is informally safe harbor and when is it promotion? And we try and help people and, you know, we, we, we whiteboard and I'm, I'm going to just, I'll go there quickly and then come right back. We try and whiteboard, you know, with the possibilities for folks. And by the way, here's the slide on, uh, excuse me, that you were talking about uh, the, yeah. with the, the buckets. There's three and then there's a fourth now, but let's go back. We w- help people whiteboard the ideas, but it, I talked about press releases, for example. You know, normally you can't just you can't just send out a white paper. That's about an off-label use. You're probably mail it out to folks. That would be uh, illegal off-label promotion. But if you do it in the form of a press release as part of your public relations effort, the FD there is some the FD does give permission to do that. Um, there are things that you can do on the internet. For example, if people come up and talk about. Uh, your product being in an off-label use, you know, you might you might be able to join in that conversation. Say, I just wanted you to know that this is an off-label use. And by the way, there are articles that address this. If you would like to use, then that that would be per, maybe permissible on your websites. You can have a repository for clinical data from and maybe other publications that address an off-label use of your product. Now, if you had it on a banner page up front, and you kept splashing, use it for this off-label use. Use it. <laughs> That might be a problem. But you if it just came out, you might be able to have a splash page. But then you, that has to go away eventually. And then it, it gets relegated to, you know, the back the, the back room of, of clinical trial, the library, if you will. So in all of these are opportunities to think through, you know, like phys, everybody asks, can I train on off-label uses and physician training? The answer is absolutely and unequivocally no, you cannot. But you are going to get off-label questions. So you have to think through, you know, how are, how am I going to handle that? Um, and then a notice of availability, for example, is when you um, you you're going to you want to advertise for because you're recruiting clinical investigators. And there's FDA guidance on this. You want to advertise for clinical investigators, and in that ad- advertisement, you might have to juxtapose on one side of the page the on-label uses for which it's currently cleared with the off-label uses that that you're seeking to enroll um, in a clinical trial and you're telling the, you know, the, the physicians, you know, maybe it's on the back of a cover of a magazine and you've got this ad and you're saying, we're recruiting for investigators for the following intentional you know, use. Maybe it's for a spot back of a spine magazine or whatever. So they're just, we try and help people be creative 
without violating the law. And in fact, our tagline for our firm is we help you be appropriately aggressive, comma, yet compliant. <laughs> we, we don't we don't feel people should unnecessarily leave money on the table, nor should they foolishly aggravate FDA and receive a warning letter and get told to cease and desist. So we try to help folks navigate that middle ground. I'm curious if you ever see exploding heads in the audience when you're teaching this, because it does seem, I mean, it's aggressive, but it's appropriately aggressive. And, and that's interesting. No, it is. And yeah, well, I see it all the time. In fact, a, a couple of probably three, two, two other uh, convergence meetings when we were, I think we we're in Vancouver, there were a bunch of FDAers in the audience and I think they <laughs> were taking umbrage and a lot of what I was saying. And I went up and talked to them after because I really love working with FDA. They are great people. Um, yeah. But, you know, and their their mission is different. But I've never been in trouble with the agency. We, um, a lot of times, sometimes we'll even send them letters in advance about what we, how we're viewing our intended use statement and how, where we're promote, going to be promoting and um, to say, if you disagree, let us know um, kind of thing. So, we, we work a lot with the agency and they're, they are very good to work with. They're not always, they're not always going to agree with you, but they're, they're good to work with. Yeah. And, and you, you, I think it's a fair and balanced approach that you have to, I mean, they, they have their job, but we also, mm-hmm. you know, the, everybody has their different perspective and job to, to, to work through that. So I'm exactly. curious again. So when you talk about these different, um, off-label uses or things that are maybe coming up and you're, you're, you're putting those in not necessarily on the splash on the front page of your website, but you're, you're hearing and getting more information from the industry about other uses of your product. There's got to be an approach or yeah, maybe this is a question. What is the approach a company should take in regards to timeline to creating a new submission versus just continuing to sort of off, you know, go ahead and, and, uh, do this dissemination and communication of off-label use. What about eventually a new submission? What are what's what's what are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, a lot of times, especially in the five ten k world, well, even in the de novo world, we often are counseling clients if they don't have the money or the financial wherewithal to go for the home run at the beginning, with the big indication that they really think this product deserves and will serve. We're, we're a lot of times we just say, let's just do a two stage strategy. Let's get you on the market for a more limited claim and start generating some revenue so that you can pay for the longer term clinical studies to put the product in the segment of the market where you really want to be, which is also the, the largest or the most lucrative or whatever. So we work with companies all the time uh, to, in regulatory strategy. We, we, again, we ask them to begin with the end in mind. What is it you'd like, what in an ideal world, if you could say, this is what I want to sell the product for. And then let's work our way back to reality. Sometimes that is reality. But not all, sometimes it's not at all reality, and we have to work our way there. I can give you an example on Coaxia, a company I worked with, um, tremendous company, did got two 510Ks and an HDDE for cerebral vasospasm, and then was headed for a PMA because they wanted the product, which was uh, straddled the renal arteries in dual balloons that when inflated would straddle the renal arteries and direct, redirected blood flow to the upper extremities, the brain, the heart, and the lungs. Really cool uh, product and an evolution in the ne- in next evolution in the line of products that were there at the time. And uh, they wanted to get another PMA, PMA and they had a 515 patient study. The, uh, the, uh, the efficacy was there, or wasn't, excuse me, the safety was around a two to fold one margin. The efficacy just missed barely 
but they accepted an endpoint, a return to normal for an ischemic stroke patient, which wasn't very realistic, but yet they almost hit it. Um, but they fell short. And so what do you do? You get a 515 patient study, you've nailed safety, and then you've got effectiveness, which just has fallen short. So on a PMA basis, you're not going to get the claim that you wanted. So they backed down and they came to us and they tried to get a 510K and they failed on that. And then I was hired to argue the, on appeal to get them their 510K. And we came up with a compromise, which at the time I thought was good. It was like 10, 11 years ago now. And they, ex, they did it. Dr. Maisel offered a de novo panel meeting, which in retrospect was the biggest mistake I could ever make. And the reason is when you're in a, when you go, when you hand a device to a, a panelist, a PMA type panelist, and if he has these folks that they use repeatedly, they think they, they're lost in a world of biostatistics and they think big, right? They think PMA. They never can dumb down the framework. I just did a 510K panel meeting a year and a half ago. Same thing. They could never think in the, in the framework of the 510K program or in the case of coaxia, the de novo and they could never look at the probable benefit has to exceed the probable risk. And um, it's, a, it's a lesser standard than, the, than a true PMA. For, and it's a class two moderate risk device. And we tried to explain that and how you have special controls become a surrogate for the establishment of reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. And we really tried to explain that to the panel. Uh, kind of to no avail. They they could not divorce themselves from this grandiose, very very granular biostatistical look at the data. So that's an example. And so we uh, and uh, we were trying to say, look, this the 550. This data has substantial worth. It's a 515 patient study following on two 510ks and an HDE. This product, you know, all we were trying to say is it could be used with not necessarily to treat ischemic stroke patients. It's a very modest, and we gave them an example of another predicate that had done a similar, had a similar type of claim in a, in a very closely aligned uh, therapeutic segment. Um, but the FDA, you know, the, the panel didn't buy off on it, the FDA didn't buy off on it, and, uh, you know, Bill and I still need to have a talk about what happened at that panel meeting. And he, I consider Bill, a, I really do consider Bill a great friend. He's a, he's been a breath of fresh air to the agency ever since he's gotten there. And I said at the MDMA meeting a couple of weeks ago, talking about the DeNovo program with Peter Yang, who's at the program lead for DeNovo at CDRH. I would say, said to the audience, you know, that Dr. Maisel, we really appreciate the fact that you take appeals. And you do overturn staff from time to time. And when you don't over overturn them, you find compromise. Because you're teaching them, as you do that, you're teaching them. And I, that is now cascaded down to some of the office directors, not all. Some of the office directors are very Maisel-like in their decision-making. They're very fair-minded. They really apply the law and the guidance, uh, regulations and guidance strictly and fairly. And it's even seen it trickle down to a, some of the, you know, what I, we would call branch chiefs. They're called division directors now. And... Uh, because we can't have all these decisions funneling up to Bill Maisel. And he's been deputizing Owen Ferris to hear some of uh, his appeals, but it can't, it can't, all of it can't go there. We need to push it down. And hopefully the training on the contours of the 510K program definitional elements will get down to the review staff. 
The review staff are getting smarter about that, knowing it, but they take a position and they're they're not open-minded. Once they've taken a position, and it's usually conservative, they're locked in and you're not going to move them at all and probably not the division director either. And so you're, you're on a path that has to take you up. So we try and get involved really early on in 510Ks if we're not submitting them ourselves uh, to help people understand, um, to give kind of strategic direction. How to I get might there. ask, like, just maybe a, a tweak on the question I asked. So suppose a company is, um, they're already commercial, but then they start to detect other uses out there, maybe off-label. And um, yep. I guess it's a business decision. I, I guess it would be to determine an ROI decision to determine whether or not they want to um, have a new submission. Is that the thought there in that absolutely. situation? Yeah. No, absolutely. It's 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 financially driven, and sometimes they're doing just fine, just leaving the product where it's at and and letting them let them uh, the, the off label use, if you will, become commonplace. You know, that's where most off label uses are discovered anyway. Uh, it's, it's by the medical community it says, hey. I, if if it is beneficial here, I can extend. I I apply a medical extrapolation, a logical medical extrapolation to apply it over here. But yeah. and sometimes companies say, you know, I don't. I just we need to get this on label so that we can actually promote for this use. That makes sense. Um, another thought is so I know Europe it, it requires a little bit more real world data. I'm curious if FDA is moving towards that a little bit as well, or, or do you have any thoughts around that? Yes and no. Um, and uh, Dr. Shuren just recently, we, I had, I basically had an appeal on going ongoing and it was a little bit, it had been decided by Bill Maisel, remanded, if you will, to the office director. So a very high level person, one of the OHT one office of health technology people. It wasn't one, it was one of the OHTs. And so he, in a sense, acted like a judge would do. He decided the case, if you will, in our favor, then remanded it, if you will, down to be handled. And then the, trial court judge, if you will, or the the office director didn't handle it so well. And so we, one of our people with the regulatory affairs person from the company who was on, it was actually a consultant for the company, saw Dr. Shuren at the speaking uh, at a, one of the conferences. And afterwards she got first in line. She said, Dr. Shuren, we have this situation that we're stuck and we've offered real world evidence. And you spoke glowingly and how important it was to the agency that you're really going to move there and whatnot. But, you know, and he said, you know, fortunately he got, he got tangentially involved and just called, you know, got Bill involved again, re-involved and it's all resolved itself. But the point is the FDA talks a lot about real world evidence at the Shuren Maisel level. And, and, you know, when they're talking to the public and the Congress and whatnot, but when you're in the trenches day to day, trying to convince them to use something that's real world data, is work. It can be done though. And we have done it, but you've got to be really particular. And what they're really concerned about, of course, with real world data is if you're retrospectively dredging up data, they want the the, the study design for the retrospective de- dredge, if you will, to be prospectively designed and to do its very best to eliminate bias and cherry picking of data insights. And, you know, because you've got data out there where people have been using the product they might have medical images that can be harvested and good data that, you know, Oswestry indexes that have been filled out or whatever. There's a, you know, radiographic data images. There's a lot of stuff that, that really can be good and then you can use it. But the FDA wants to know it has, you know, that it has some integrity. And um, 
they're they're they truly are getting better in 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 pre-submission meetings they're getting pretty good at helping us we i had one cardiovascular client where we actually negotiated a real world study against an index or a, a registry that's been going on for decades or a decade at least and we're going to be able to compare against that and i'm really excited it's a propensity scoring data it's really exciting and the fda is really working hard with us and it's i'm, I'm very proud of them it's ram zuckerman's group and uh so yeah those there's success stories but there i i think we've got to get the desire to to accept real world data from the top level folks down to the the, the trench level folks and middle yeah. management okay yeah that makes sense curious if you have before we go to q a do you have any other thoughts recommendations for regulatory affairs professionals medtech professionals an approach to ad promo, just the the any any general advice that you typically hear questions on. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think your management will value you. They they know you know the regulations and the law and what, but they're, where they're really going to value you is when you can become creative and help them get to their goals. So, and you know, com- firms like us are here to help you. But even some, I mean, I know some law firms that are still as conservative as the FDA. Um, I just think you need to just open your your mind and think there, there if is this possible ask the question is what they don't just be immediately dismissive of sales and marketing saying here we go again you know they're always pushing the envelope and whatever. just ask yourselves is, I'm not going to be so uh, negative about this I'm going to ask myself is this possible and then if you if you don't have it you know you don't know if it is in your own get help and there are folks out there that can help you brainstorm. And that's like I say, that's why we do these whiteboarding exercises all the time. Because we literally will sit down. I, I'll go out to a company and I'll do a didactic for two hours. And what's the, le- the landscape that they're going to encounter in advertising promotion from an enforcement standpoint? And what is the FDA's expectations? But when I say be truthful, not misleading, and fairly balanced, that's the framework. But there's a lot of stuff that comes out of um, in the regulations, in the guidance documents, in you glean from warning letters and all sorts of stuff that tell you what FDA's interpretation of things really is. But if you if you whiteboard, you know, we'll do, like I say, we'll do a two-hour didactic. We'll do three, four hours. I'll just say to the marketers, throw it all on the table. What are your ideas? Let's whiteboard stuff right now. What would you ideally like to do? And let's start, let's start the path on figuring out how we can do that. And we've done that. We've had 1,254 clients. So we've... Not all of them have been advertising promotions. Some of us on the submission side, but you know, I you know, I we probably have an N of eight hundred on this. So that's pretty good. Um, and one last thought on that. So uh, you'd mentioned the general and specific use. I wonder if you could maybe just. I, I know you have a good illustration of the umbrella term. Uh, I wonder yep. if you can just kind of dive yeah, into that even, in the next five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I can even go up there and do it. Am I, cl- am I making people dizzy doing I saw, this? I threw you all over the place. Sorry to do that to you, Mark. That's all right. Uh, right there, right? And, we'll, and, we'll pro- and if you're okay with it, we'll provide these slides as well if, if, if yeah. people are interested. Okay. Yeah, well, these are convergence slides. Let me put the opening slide for you. I'll, I'll recreate the opening slide so it's not stolen from raps technically. Um, sure. But so here's where FDA starts. And you, you know, we never had these two definitions before. FDA used to talk about and people still confuse intended use versus indications for use. So technically, the statute uh, and the regulations talk about intended use, which just is nothing more than 
the general purpose of the device or what it does, and then it encompasses the indi subsidiary indications for use. And the indications for use then is defined to mean the disease or condition the device will diagnose, treat, prevent, cure, or mitigate, including a description of the patient population for which the device is intended. I will note one thing here. Notice the word treat here. And so you're, I'll show you some, some stuff here in a minute. The difference between tool and treatment, FDA gravitates in the 510K toward a tool, but frankly, they do allow you to say something about what it treats. And so they have trouble. I have a recent case appeal that we won uh, at the office director level where they have now permitted us to use a, basically a treatment type of claim. Uh, it's hard to, I, this, I, without giving away, I can't describe it, but this is what you were looking at. And it's from one of our client alerts. I've been using this umbrella for, gosh, at least 20, maybe 25 years to describe. And, and now, and Marjorie Schulman, FDA, used to use this, uh, director of the 510K program operations staff. She just retired, but she used to give me credit from the audience when I was in the audience for this. Because I used to, I've always th thought this, I, I always think visually, guys, just, just so you know. I think of the general intended use as being the umbrella. This is the umbrella that you were handed by FDA. And I'm fond of saying that. FDA is fond of giving you a general intended use statement that suggests the product can be used for just about everything, but then they tell you that you can promote it for nothing. <laughs> so it's very difficult. <laughs> it's frustrating for marketers. And so the umbrella contemplates a lot of subsidiary indications for use that would be on-label indications. If you think of the rain, the umbrella protecting you from the elements, you're under there and you're staying dry and you're okay. But if you get too far afield, you're out there on the edges of the umbrella, you're exposed to the elements, you're, you're off label and could get a warning letter. And certainly you probably have to do a de novo or PMA to get that, that indication. So the way FDA breaks it down is analytically is a one old guidance document plus their 2014 510K guidance document. But they have this old one that they still use. It's a, it's breaks it down into levels of specificity. How specific are you getting with your claim for all the way from identification of a function like cutting down to an effect on a clinical outcome? And then the second one are these decision-making criteria. And there's seven of them, and they look at risk. They look at public health impact. In other words, how much more risk does the specific use entail versus the general uh, intended use? They look at the knowledge base of the medical community. Can they use the, the specific use just like they would in the general? It doesn't change. What endpoints apply to your studies that you've done or the data you have apply to specific use? And then this famous tool or treatment one, you'll see this in warning letters. You'll see it in AINN letters. They'll come back to you and you think, well, we think you're really uh, making a treatment claim. And if you are, you have to, you're going to be at the novel or whatever. So that's kind of where FDA goes with it. The example, the classic example is the ablation devices. They first were used cleared to ablate soft tissue. That was the umbrella. Then they started saying, well, we ablate cardiac tissue. Now that's on the edge of the umbrella. And then they started saying, well, we're used to treat atrial fib. And that got you out in the treatment realm. And that was off-label FDA retrenched and said, oh, time out. We've gone too far. So that's, does that help answer that question? Yeah, it does. And I, I guess one of the other questions, maybe follow-up is, um, why would you want to be very specific with your indication of use. Would that be to reduce some of the testing load in the submission or some, what, what are some of the reasons you might want to do this versus that? Absolutely. So at the de novo program, I talked about uh, being tethered to a pole 
you know, 510K for, to the FDA is like being te- a tether ball on a tether pole. They can only ask for data only, you can only the, in, the, in the sphere of the, the potential sphere of the, of where the tether ball goes is in the pole is the predicate. They can't go, they really shouldn't be going any further than the predicate did. Um, and they're often trying to do that. They're all, they're, FDA is often trying to shore up predicate families by asking for clinical data that has never heretofore been asked requested or or maybe biocompatibility data beyond which has been requested or bench testing animal data whatever they'll ask for more and more and more almost endlessly it's a mindless escalation of data requirements and um when you get them to think about it they and you say well, hey we're in the 510k and here's what the predicate family has established you have a, a under least burdensome requirements principles you have a, a strong argument to argue them down in a, and to stay tethered to the tether. If they get you, if they define you off the 510K path and you're in the realm of de novo, a, I hate to say this, they say they would be biased by user fee economics, but they get about $100,000 more. And they aren't tethered to the pole anywhere. Now they're in the realm of PMA land. It's reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness, albeit applied to a class two moderate risk device. So it's kind of a PMA light standard. It's more than a 510K, but less than a PMA. And so that's what, you know, that's what's transpiring there. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this is great. I know we're kind of at time for, uh, you know, this section of the podcast. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for future events. I know we we have TQR, True Quality Roadshow, coming up in Minneapolis with Howard Root. So I'm really excited to see see you in person there. So thanks again, Mark. You're welcome. All right. I'm just going to give a little pause so we can have that recording kind of edited towards the end. But now we have some questions from the audience. I really appreciate those. I know there's a whole lot more you could go through. Um, But let's look at what the audience had to say. So there were a few things. Let's see. Zach asked, if a physician uses a product in an off-label fashion, could a case study of or marketing document be created around the off-label use of the product as long as the information presented is truthful, not misleading, fairly balanced, and provides disclosures, disclaimers that, that you know what, I think. It's a great question. Happens yeah. all the time. We get it all the time. So case studies are interesting. Yeah, we do allow clients to use case studies. We figure out how they can, oh, you're putting it up for me. That's helpful. Um, but physicians, you know, or companies want to use case studies all the time. You know, you know if, you're, if you're just doing an N of one case study and it's on an off-label use and you're kind of touting it, that's, that's pro- that can be problematic. Um, but if it's part of your publication planning and you're working with physicians and they decide to start publishing stuff, that's, you know, and then you start drawing, you can point people to it. That's, you know, that's an opportunity to market lawfully. Um, but onesies and twosies case studies are, are more difficult. Sometimes companies, and by the way, I can't give legal advice here, so I have to be careful, you know, I, unless you're a client. But uh, but you, you also want to, sometimes people are putting on, they have a case study series and they're asking for physicians to contribute to uh, a venue that they've created but the physicians are then allowed to say whatever it is they want. And the company puts on a major disclaimer or as an overlay onto that, whatever the, and then they don't edit what the, well, you know, what the, except for to make sure it fits within certain parameters. They don't edit what the physician has to say about a case study. There are a lot of, there are a lot of things, Zach, that you can do in that realm, but it turns a lot on the facts and how you get it done correctly. For okay. lack of a better word. 
Yeah. All right. Oh, thank you for answering that. Donna has another question. I, you might have answered this one. Regulatory submissions are tied closely with the clinical trial strategy. A growing demand exists from the FDA for real-world evidence, real-world data. What's your view on coaching the clinical strategy? Again, with the end in mind for the, these to be accomplished, is real-world evidence and real-world data helping or hindering regulatory submission reasonableness? Uh, lawyer's answer on that is both. <laughs> Actually, that'd be the regulatory affairs answer on that is both. Um it, it really, so I'm going to go back to that concept of not just file thinking of a submission, whether it be a pre-submission filing, whether it be a 510K or de novo, or it be a response to an AINN letter. Everything is, it just, it's not just an evidentiary document. It's an advocacy document with evidence. RWE or D is never going to sell itself. You're going to have to sell it to the agency, and, and a lot of times, if you, it it tends to be confirmatory. See, so it, it might be a fruitful discussion for a pre-sub, but sometimes even psychologically, I wouldn't want to offer it up front because you'd want to see if you could get by on the data you have, but then be prepared to come back. Well, what if we offered you some real-world data, and then sometimes you know you're presumptive about your position, you've already done it, and you're submitting it, and hopefully it's good enough. But FD, in FDA's psychology, they, they rarely, you got to understand the psychology of a regulator. Most often, whatever you provide on the first pass is not good enough. They cannot help themselves. It's just not going to be good enough. And you have to either convince them or provide additional uh, information. And when you provide inf additional information, of course, the preference for them to say is, well, you need to come to us to ask us precisely what additional information you might want if it's going to be in real world data. Um, and sometimes you have it already done and in the bag and you just want to, you didn't want to give it to them up front, but now you want to give it to them as confirmatory uh, information. So it, that's a big topic, Don, and Don's a friend of mine, by the way. Um, that's a big topic. And we spend a lot of time with folks strategizing what's the best sequence. What is the best of what's the quantum, the quality of data we want to file? What's the best sequence to do it? And do we want to go to the FDA to flesh it out how we get it or not so it's a big topic okay no thanks and uh don thanks for putting him on the spot there so uh jasmine has a question she she's asking about the use of contract sales forces or medical affairs msl for engaging hcps and she asked how can compliance monitor sales particularly in the context of contract sales force i think how can they monitor sales and commercial uh or even medical affairs are not soliciting requests for off-label information and promoting off-label? Yeah, well, first of all, it starts with the contract. And I used to be a general counsel, so I would put it right into the contract. I and There's this, like this, uh, there's this uh, wrong presumption, I think, on the part of some, A, there's a wrong presumption on the part of a contracting organization that, you know, you, you don't, you know, you can't engage in compliance with my organization, and, and, which is, completely wrong. Not Most don't have that view. but And then there's a wrong presumption on the side of the company that FDA doesn't hold us responsible for the acts of a contract employee. They most assuredly do. So you really are going to have to work out, just treat them like, you have to, in a sense, kind of treat them like this, your sales force. You have to bring them in. I remember working with Medtronic Software Danic, and they had six, I used to train annually 600 folks at a time, <laughs> and we'd break it down in like 125 a piece and do, you know, segments. And um, when we did that, though, we we I, Medtronic is like this. They just said, if you're a contract employee working for us, 
you're basically us because you're representing our name. And so you're going to get all the training our sales reps would get, and you're going to have to adhere to the same policies that we have in place about off-label dissemination and pricing, bundling, and rebate offers and whatever else it is, we want you to make sure that you're following company policy. Now, the smaller you are, the less clout you have to insist on a lot of that stuff. So, but you have to, you are going to be held responsible. You've got to find a way. And usually, usually company, the contract organizations are good enough to know that today. And um, they're not too bad. Some, some are horrible, uh, but most are pretty, pretty decent about it. And they will show up at your national sales meetings and things like that. Uh, so that's really the, one of the biggest takeaways for me is you still have the same responsibility for their actions, Billy. Yep. Yep. William asked a question. Can you talk about the FDA versus FTC related to ad promo and when we may trigger enforcement action? Right. That's a fantastic question, too. Um, first of all, they have competing jurisdiction and they have a memorandum of understanding um, that allows them. And FDA has ceded a lot of authority to the FDA because it's a lot of their because the FDA is, is the one that's granting permission to get on the marketplace. Right. So they have had intense negotiations on intended use indications for use, et cetera. On a 510K, they can't talk to you about your advertising promotion, constitutionally speaking, or even a statute. But on a PMA, they have that right to even talk about the launch. And it's true with a, a new drug application as well. So there's more authority on that end of the spectrum. But where you're down on the 510K end of the spectrum, even de novo, um, they, don't, they don't have as much jurisdiction and authority over it. But, um, do you, can you post actually post that question? Let me see if I can. That's in a different section, and I <laughs> so just go back to it again because I, yeah. I was I got off tangent. And I want to make sure I'm answering the question. Just read it again. That's okay. Yeah. Can you talk about the FDA versus FTC ah. related? Yeah. Yeah. So FTC. So FTC. Though I've got a recent example, two recent examples, where we were dealing with a company on nutritional supplements where we were trying to close out a warning letter that we had for clients that came to us after getting a warning letter and we helped them out. And it was interesting because while we got a release of the, we got a close out of the warning letter from FDA, the FTC wouldn't. And it was really strange. And we've been skirmishing with them a bit on this and saying, you know, the common operative, there's a common operative set of facts and there's similar, but not identical statutes Certainly, it's about getting making sure that products are being represented truthfully and not in a not misleading and fairly balanced fashion. And yet FTC was getting, you know, I think this new administration under Biden is actually being a little more aggressive with FTC. You can see them trying to work on non-competes and things like that, saying that they want to have a national rule, which they can't do, that you can't have non-competes throughout the country uh, in contract, you know, employ independent contractor you know, relationships extend that kind of liberality, that thinking to um, what they seem to be doing in advertising promotion. They seem to be wanting to get a little more active on what has historically been ceded to, F to FDA as, it, as their turf. So I don't, this is yet to play out. I don't, we don't know where it's going, but they technically do have jurisdiction authority. They don't give it up. Um, in, the, in the arenas of class one products, especially where FDA is a little light, you know, all you got to do is register and list your product and Register your establishment, list your products. So uh, class one products that are, you know, low risk and usually 510K exempt, the FTC will jump in a little bit more. I've got products on this shelf behind me where we've represented class one products where FDA has taken a little more prominent um, role. 
So it's evolving. It's a great question. Interesting. And it, another question is kind of about your thoughts about um, maybe the 510k program. I know it's evolved over the years. There are certain, uh, some people from, um, you know, on the consumer side or the medical side feel like it should be even tighter than it is. I know there's documentaries like the bleeding edge that talks about those things, but then also from the industry, there's the tension of, well, it's, it's too restrictive. What are your thoughts? Is, is there any change in the future? And if so, what would that change look like? Do you have any? Yeah. Well, you know, the, I, I know the bleeding edge and it's funny because those people really don't know the, the amount of data that you submit and then the level of negotiations that take place and the quality of the data that gets, I mean, if it's not a quality, they make you go back and redo it, frankly. Um, so I used to, you know, I used to laugh when plaintiff's lawyers would gin up, you know, and they talk about how the 510k is just this me too program. And frankly, you know, or in the early years, there, there wasn't a lot of data and you could basically prove you're on, on the market by virtue of a pre-amendments device and, and beyond, and then there was, you know, early 510Ks, and the lineage was not, the program was not applied that aggressively, but but technology was not, even on an incremental basis, uh, improving as fast as it is today. 510Ks are, um, and when Dr. Shern came into office as the center director, the first thing he tried to do with the Institute of Medicine was dismantle the 510K program. Now, he's, he's a bureaucrat. He's an administrator. He's not a legislator, but he was kind of acting in a, le- a quasi-legislative capacity, trying to so radically change the 510K program. There was a hue and cry out from industry, and I was part of that. And he did back down, and I give him a lot of credit, and he's now working with the 510K program. But here's what's happened is um, they continually get more and more um, conservative on how they're defining the 510K program, and they can it's it gets easy for them to define products off the map and get them onto the, no, the novel path where they do get $100,000 more per submission. So that's mm-hmm. a lot of money. Now, I talked to Peter Yang, who I said, this question may come up for you. And, I, and in fairness to Peter, he said, Mark, honestly, we are not motivated by that. We just, if we think of it as submission of submission, we don't think in terms of the money that comes in because we're just, we're working on, we're too busy. We're just working on stuff <laughs> at, at the review level. And I take him at his word. But, I, you know, upper management is the beneficiary of that because they're always asking for more money on behalf of the organization. And I just want us to be really have some degree of fidelity to what Congress really intended. So my job is when I go in, when we go early on in, you know, we're a big fan of executive summaries. When I talk about an advocacy document, start out, folks, telling your story the executive summary is probably the most important part of your submission, of your response, of anything that you do. And I always say that people always speak, and I've media trained many, many times at 3M. Um, people always speak in the form of an inverted pyramid. Think of it. They ramble, 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 get to the point. Yeah. And the media trainers will tell you, flip that around. Get to the point and, inc- and support it with an increasingly widening base of information and explanation. And that's what your executive summary is. It's to distill down for the agency where what this product is and where you're headed and why you believe it's deserving, for example, to stay on the 510K path and anticipate proactively that they might object to, yeah, you don't have a predicate. You don't have the same intended use. You don't, you have different technological characteristics and you're raising different questions of safety and effectiveness. And we, we have argued this so often. We have 
a lot of creative and solid arguments about how to defeat those, you know, that those arguments from the agency. Yeah. That's great. Great answer. I appreciate that. Melinda asked a question. Maybe we'll make this the last question just so people have a few minutes before, you know, whatever the next uh, hour comes. So Melinda asked the questions, any thoughts on the best way to word contractual agreements in relation to CPG 300.600 for capital equipment, like an MRI machine that have frequent changes to its software and to deduce functionality um, that assures the customer mm-hmm. when they purchase it, they'll be entitled to future upgrades that technically don't exist yet. Yeah, that's in the chapter of my book. It was a kind of a specialty of my my colleague that wrote that the chapter. Whether we wrote it together, it's basically, you know, what are you doing when you're when you get next generation products that are are changing, particularly soft. If I got this question right, Melinda, things are changing, and you want to incorporate that in. When does it become a new device, right? Um, and so. When do you have to, and that and it gets to FDA's modifications guidance, which was in a, uh, put in place, I think, in 2017, I believe. You might remember that when FDA in, put in their, into place their modifications guidance document, their, their original request that we in an industry fought against it because even AdvaMed and, and MDMA fought and basically saying, you're basically going to be asking for several hundred thousand more 510Ks a year because... <laughs> If you take all the changes we make to devices and they are going to be the subject of a brand new 510K under the new modifications reading of, the, of your modifications guides, you're wrong. And the statute basically is simple. If you make a modification to a device, it does it significantly affect safety or effectiveness and or has it been a major change to the intended use? And FDA's guidance goes a little way, way farther than that. And they put it into the risk-benefit analysis. And it's not totally true to the statute of the regulations, but it's not that bad. The point is, uh, with respect to capital equipment, if you're making changes, when do you have to file, you know, for a new 510K? And when can you just do a letter to file? Uh, and we often author letters to file if we think they're going to be a close call. And the and we want that investigator to pick up, when they pick up that memo, it says Duval and Associates at the top, because they don't usually mess with us like they would if it's an internal memo. But don't just do when you change a product, by the way, don't just do a narrative or don't just circle the, the, the flow chart, do a narrative to accompany that and convince them. Again, it's an advocacy document. Now, going back to her question on contractual language, Melinda, that's a very specific question. You know, we'd have to spend some time. But, yeah, you have to you do have to address that because you can't be selling products before they're actually cleared. And the reason I talked about the modifications guidance document is that's the step before. You have to decide whether you need a clearance or not. Is it an LTF or is it a clearance? And if it's a clearance, then you have to be, you know, FDA has gotten a little more accepting of what changes can be made to certain devices, particularly software driven, because, you know, there's always bugs that have to be worked out. You can't file a new 510K for everything. So um, that's a that's a very intricate and important question, but I can't answer it completely uh, yeah. in this format. I'm sure it, it keeps going. If you have multiple letters to file, I'm sure at some point, you know, maybe having an aggregate of the changes. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. Absolutely. So that's you know, the predicate family grows and grows and then you have to do a catch up 510k at some point. Well, this is really, really interesting. I really appreciate it, Mark. Um, I think we're going to just go ahead and cut it off now. Um, those are some really great questions. I appreciate the participation from the audience. Um any last things you'd like to say, Mark, before we let you go? 
No, hey, this is a really fun format. I've never really done a format with, at this length. And uh, Etienne, I really appreciate you walking me through this and helping me technologically figure it all out and, and then uh, enjoying some time answering questions from the audience. Yeah, this was great. Well, thank you so much. We'll let everybody know when the recording comes out and uh, so you can share it and let's do it again. Really appreciate everybody's participation. We'll let you all get back to it. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. A few of the points that I took away from this conversation are, one, we talked about the four buckets of information sharing at the beginning and then throughout the episode, and they all have their place. Number one, the first one being promotion of on-label information, whether it's general or specific use, the dissemination of off-label medical scientific information, and then the communication of both on- and off-label information. And then the last one, which he says is relatively new, the promotion of off-label information. So fantastic takeaways. I really enjoyed the four buckets of information that he shared. One of the biggest things to think about is that the information you provide has to be three things truthful, not misleading, and fairly balanced. He said, if you listen and you hear and remember anything, remember that the things that you share have to be truthful, not misleading, and fairly balanced. Fantastic. I also loved his umbrella analogy, which if you haven't gotten a chance to go over to Duval and Associates and sign up or subscribe to their client alerts, this is inside one of those client alerts. It's a very well done publication that they do and provide to their clients. He has an umbrella analogy. The point is that your on-label indications should stay under the umbrella of your general intended use. There's so many links in the show notes, so be sure and check those other resources out. We shared guidance documents. We shared a link to Howard Root's book, which I'll be interviewing Howard Root in Minneapolis in a few weeks at our True Quality Roadshow. So if you haven't got a chance to check that episode out, likely by the time you hear this, it will have been released. So check that out as well. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to Mark Duvall on LinkedIn. Let him know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru, or look me up on LinkedIn. Let me know if there are other specific topics that you'd like us to cover or specific experts you'd like us to interview so that you can hear more from them. Lastly, if you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's a document management system, CAPA management system, or an electronic data capture for your clinical investigations, or your design controls and risk management software, let us know. This is software that's built for MedTech professionals by MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us, and it lets us know how you're doing, how we're doing. I hope you're doing great. Thanks again. You're the best. Take care. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Grew, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 1345 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.